Sometimes bigger is better. Yelp has the largest restaurant consumer network in the U.S. Now hungry guests can find you on Yelp, Google Maps, and anywhere they're searching. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to be seen by 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, reserved with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S. 2022. Now here we go. If you don't have a composting program, start a composting program at your restaurant. It's not that expensive. If you live in a city that already has it, there's so much food waste out there, right? And we all know we can say we're a zero waste restaurant, but things still just aren't edible or they go bad or there's too much trim of something for your demand. A composting program is step one, I think, for anybody in the restaurant industry. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. James Beard award-winning chef Rob Ruba seems to have it all. A blockbuster restaurant that's great for the environment, a happy staff, and work-life balance that most of us would kill for. None of this happened by accident. In today's conversation, we sit down with the chef to discuss how he architected the life and career of his dreams through the intentional peeling away of everything that did not serve him, his team, or the environment. What drew me into it, honestly, was I have a real lack of discipline. So sitting in class and learning all this stuff through graphic design really wasn't scratching an itch for me. And I would get distracted. I would skip class and go skateboarding and whatnot. And then I took a summer job cooking in Connecticut with my uncle. And I just, I don't know, I think the instant gratification of doing something and seeing those results in front of you and not being so like dragged out. And I was learning on the job and actually doing something just really, really got me hooked for sure. Yeah, I look at your career and we'll get into all of the nuances as we go. But you're somebody that's really comfortable with quitting and taking a new direction. You've done it multiple times throughout your career. And I think a lot of people don't realize it takes a lot of courage to say, like, I'm on this path. There's momentum. I've got trajectory. I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to go into a different direction, which is, I mean, forgetting hard. You've got to get real comfortable with struggle, with failure, with learning. Have you always been that way? And what skills have you developed that have helped you there? Yeah, I don't know if I've always been that way, but definitely after high school, I think I started to develop that muscle for that. And that kept growing throughout my career. 
you hit those words like failure, quitting. Those aren't negative words to me. Those are very positive things. And getting out of my comfort zone is really important to me. I think that's how I grow and as a human and career-wise constantly. I think it's really easy to lay back on your laurels and just kind of ride that out. But I don't know if you really push yourself to the full extent, like what is possible? What can I do? And yeah, I've definitely done it a lot, whether it was an art school, then going in, I originally started in pastry and then I stopped doing pastry and then got into savory cooking. I went to cooking school briefly and then I left that because I just wanted to get the ground running. And then from being a meat cook to quitting that and just started cooking plant-based food too. I mean, it's always been just like, what's next? What else can I explore? It's, I guess it's a creative mind too and a curious mind at the same time. And you're crazy until you're a genius, right? That's typically the way it goes. That's the <laughs> entrepreneurial gene. <laughs> you know, this is never going to work. And then it works. Everyone's like, I knew it was going to work all along. How do you convince people to go along for the ride? You seem like a natural leader to me. Most chefs are. But to take these different directions, I would assume that you've got to create a lot of discipline and a lot of enthusiasm as a leader. I would agree with that. I mean, a lot of people, they do think you're crazy. You know, when we set out to open Oyster Oyster, I mean, investors and folks alike would just kind of be like, what are you doing? No way. I don't want anything to do with that. And like you said, now they're like, congratulations. I knew you guys would be great. <laughs> yeah, I think for me being a leader now, I mean, definitely had good amount of experience is really leading by example in the beginning. I don't want to ask something of my team that I myself wouldn't do or can't do. They might be a little faster than me. They, I'm getting older, but you know, like I can still do it. And being aware of that, I think, makes you work with a lot more dignity with your team because you're not just pushing and exploiting like this industry has done so much in the past. And just being really honest and open with my team as well. I think is one of the strong points of that leadership to get people involved because you build that reputation. When I started the restaurant, we had, I had two other cooks with me and I was kind of doing a lot on my plate, but we really pushed and they really believed in the same things I believed in. And then we got some great accolades and then more folks come in because of that reputation. And I think just staying true to that is what's important at this point. But if we go back to the beginning, and a lot of it's going to speak to what you do today, but your principal role, your principal function is as a teacher, right? As an educator, that's your principal function now. But in order to learn how to do that effectively, I'm sure you had some great teachers in the past and some terrible teachers in the past. I think we all did, especially coming up in this industry the way that you did. Talk to me about that. How did mentorship play a role in your career? Who influenced you and how? Yeah, a lot of great mentors. I worked for a lot of really phenomenal people. But the first to kick it off was my uncle when I went to work in Connecticut. He was a chef and it's real easy for me to just get the silver spoon in my mouth, but that wasn't the way it was going to be. I had to learn the hard way and always give me advice and talking me out of maybe some bad decisions. Like, oh, I think I want to go work here. He's like, I don't think you're ready for that. Or maybe you are. Maybe go take that leap and maybe you Failure might help you in this situation. And he's always been a good person to lean on to. I mean, I've worked for some great chefs that have taught me about just professionalism and discipline and not yellers. I worked for a lot of screamers and yellers <laughs> over the years who, who throw things and yell. But the ones that didn't do that, I really admired. The ones who were able to command rather than demand, I think was the most amazing thing because they just were able to push the team, drive the team, create that intensity, build kind of like a Peloton during a service and 
really get everybody motivated to be on board rather than cooking out of fear. I think that was always the hardest part. I've been that person who's just, you're nervous and you're afraid you're going to get fired or someone's going to scream and throw something at you. And I don't think the results are beneficial. So the chefs who kind of portrayed that image of a motivator and driving and that coach kind of element and seeing the potential in an individual and pulling that out of people with that scope of an individual, right? They're not looking at you as you're just a cook and that's one box that everybody kind of is a little different. Everyone has their own little values and what they're going to bring to the team is amazing. And it's something I really try to adapt now and view everyone as a linchpin. Even if they come in and they're presenting as like a cog in the wheel, we want to make sure that they're find what is special about them and pull that out. You use the word coach, and I think it's super relevant to the industry and kind of to where the industry is in this moment. When I grew up in the industry, we were a family, right? (laughs) How does your family treat you? How do you treat your family? It wasn't the healthiest environment. And then I ended up getting a coach for myself who said, you're not going to be able to excel as a family. You're not going to hit the levels that you want to. You've got to be a team, a high performance team. And in changing that dynamic, there was accountability that there never was before. And it wasn't this person is trying their hardest. It's like this person is here and they need to get here. How can the team rally around this person to help them level up their skills? Talk to me about how accountability manifests itself within your brigade. Yeah, with accountability is really important, like you said not being in that family men's mindset, right? Like, oh, come on, you need to come to work today. I know you're sick, but we're family, right? (laughs) It is because we all believe in something bigger, right? I never wanted to open this restaurant and it'd be, you're coming to work for Rob Ruba. I wanted you to come because you believed in the ethos of Oyster Oyster and what you wanted that to reflect for yourself. So pushing that narrative rather than you work for me, we work together has really helped. So the main thing is, We know the quality standards. Everyone tastes things. One of the original things I did when we first started was our team works longer-ish hours, but not crazy, but you prep and cook your dish. You know it inside out. There's no prep team. So there's none of that old school, oh, the prep team fucked this up. (laughs) (laughs) In that banter, I didn't like that. I think it created a very negative space in a restaurant. But what I did do in the beginning was you prepped someone else's work that was working next to you. So when service started and things got hard. And if that prep wasn't right, you knew that person was failing because of you, right? And you knew, okay, well, now if I can take care of someone else and make sure they're doing well and supporting them, that now you're not going to take shortcuts for yourself. And when someone new comes on, you're going to know you need to instill that. They have to become the varsity players, right? And they need to set that tone for the next team that comes in. And that's really important because when you have that accountability and people are counting on you to make sure they shine at night and you're right next to them. You're not that prep cook that gets to go disappear. (laughs) You don't see what happens. That person's right there next to you. And it's not a negative thing. You actually just take more responsibility. You feel committed to this. This is so important to me. And there's a lot of quality in there. And then when someone takes over the station, you're like, I kind of did that better. That's not as good as I would have done it. And I think that's an important thing. I want to talk about sustainability and I want to flash back to 2015, not necessarily in your life, actually in mine, which proves that I'm a terrible interviewer. I had opened up fine dining restaurant in 2014. I had come out of nightlife. And so the fine dining restaurant that I opened kind of on the success of this meteoric success of this bar in Hollywood, it was the first restaurant I had ever worked in. 
and I had chosen to get into fine dining, probably because I'm a fool and a glutton for punishment. I mean, how hard could it have possibly been? And it was a nightmare. The first year was a disaster. At the end of year one, I take over as general manager. I let go of the executive chef. I brought in a new executive chef who I proceeded to work with for the better part of a decade after that. And in one of our first conversations, he said, what do you know about sustainability? And I knew nothing about sustainability. And he talked to me about the ins and the outs and the impact on the community. And I really began to care. And I said, well, is it going to be expensive? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, do you think the customers will care? And he goes, not yet, but maybe one day. And we started down this path, this moral path to sustainability. And it was a long journey, which ended up leading to the restaurant becoming carbon neutral a couple of years later. But what was your path? When did sustainability hit your radar? When did it become a thing for you? I mean, I think heavily on the professional side, not until about 2018. But I mean, as a person, I think it's kind of always been a part of something. I mean, I remember the commercials when I was a kid and it'd be like, put a brick in your toilet to reduce water and turn the water off when you brush your teeth. Those became parts of my daily routine, thinking about water conservation, recycling, all that kind of stuff. So I think I've always been mindful of it. But in the beginning of my career, it was just really work for the best people, learn the best things. And that was kind of put in the background. But then around, say, 2016, 2017, I was working at this restaurant called Hazel as a chef. And I was just looking at how we were producing things and what was going on. And I don't know if it was like existential or I have kids and <laughs> just thinking about permanence. But it really started to hit that that restaurant was far from anything sustainable. And the way we were cooking, the way the team was, the front of the house, even the design of the restaurant was just kind of daunting. At that point, I didn't even know if I wanted to continue that, that path, right? Where do I start? And then I more a deep dive and realized, okay, this is a skill set that I have. This is a way that I could help promote this sustainability, but I'd have to leave this restaurant and build something from the ground up. That's the only way I could see it happening. So I'd say right around that time period is when it really took off for me. What really helped us was cheating. So we had circulators, every, every square inch of the restaurant, right? That plastic island that they talk about in the ocean, that was probably a direct result of our dinner service. So we bought carbon credits, which is a way, whether it's a great way or not, we can debate, but it's a way to offset your carbon footprint because there was only so much we were willing to do as I sit across from a man that got rid of plastic wrap in his restaurant that sous vide's nothing because you got rid of plastic bags. You don't use olive oil in your restaurant. I could go on and on. I'm sure everybody just turned off the radio. That commitment was obviously an evolutionary process, but the commitment to the end goal during what I am sure was a lot of discomfort had to be hard. So before we get into the practical application of what you did and how you did it, I want to talk about mindset because those were very difficult decisions to make as both a chef and a business owner. Yeah, I knew it was the only way I wanted to do it, but it was kind of starting all over again. It was like I had this at that point, 16 years of cooking in kitchens and techniques like sous vide and rolling things up in plastic wrap and all these things I could lean on that were great, but I knew that I couldn't do that anymore. And in the early days, yeah, there probably was 
olive oil is still in my mind that we could do that, right? Maybe I would bring avocados in from California. But the deeper I dove, I was like, that doesn't make sense to ship it over here to the East Coast. So really having to dial back. And to me, it was kind of like a sculptor. We had this big, big lump of stone in front of us. And we were like, this is our sustainable restaurant. But the more we thought about it, we chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And a lot of that had to go away. And I think that's the big thing with sustainability is we use that word and it's so broad. But if you really dial in, you've got to give up so much. And yeah, that was a little tough. I mean, like I said, how he said, people think you're crazy <laughs> until you get there. I mean, just talking, talking to people like, oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do this. Is this guy on something? What's going on? And people are like, okay, man. And I'd want the restaurants at Hazel was known for like we had sticky, crunchy ribs on the menu and steak tartare and foie. And oh, you just gave all that up? You're a vegetarian now? <laughs> so I made all those life choices. I also made sure I went right into signing up for a community garden because I wanted to see the cycle of plants. And I felt like I had to grow food to no food. That was like really important to me to be able to push back because I'd maybe I would see things about a plant that I'm like, oh, that's how we'll get around having to use plastic wrap for that or whatever. But yeah, it was kind of a tough decision for sure. Let's talk about becoming part of the community. So as a vegetarian restaurant, you've got the vegetarian community. Yay. For however big that is, it's hard to make that community galvanize at a rate, especially in fine dining, where you're able to keep the doors open. So you can't be a vegetarian restaurant. You have to be a restaurant that happens to serve vegetarian cuisine, which requires a lot of education, right? And a lot of communication with your community. How do you do that? How do you overcome any perceived stigmas with being vegetarian? Yeah, I was a meat eater for omnivore, we'll say, for a long time. And when I did go eating veg and like plant-based, I was really disappointed with a lot of these restaurants that were in the realm of us. I mean, there's some of the best Ethiopian and Indian food and stuff in D.C., and that's phenomenal. But for terms of like a restaurant that I wanted to do, I was disappointed. And there were a lot of those things like, oh, they're going to serve a tofu steak. And we, I, I was like, all right, these are things that we're not going to serve. But it comes back down to great hospitality, really good beverage program, professional cooking that's very thoughtful and driven, but also not being preachy about our mission. Just I want someone to come and sit down and just feel like they're eating at whatever restaurant. Like you said, it's not necessarily a vegetarian restaurant. And we've coined ourselves more as a sustainability driven restaurant more than that. And then by the time you're eating, you realize, oh, we didn't eat any meat. And that was great. You know, <laughs> it's kind of the whole thing of it is not to really push that too much because you are right. It would probably draw, turn a lot of people away. I think they would be a little confused and say, I don't want to eat just vegetables. But I think we've done it in such a way. We've had such fantastic front of the house and service team that really cares about what we do. And they tell the story, they weave it through the descriptions of the dishes rather than being like, we don't serve animals, factory farming's bad. We don't push that narrative. We push our narrative that we're giving an exceptional experience with some of the best quality ingredients in our region that's seasonal and you can come have a sense of time and place where we are. The chefs are a community as well. And I would assume that some folks have reached out to you over the years, especially once you got all of the press around sustainability and ask, where's the low-hanging fruit? If I wanted to journey down this path, what are some easy ways I could start implementing sustainable practices? What advice do you have for the folks that are looking to do that? 
Yeah. They don't ask how you don't do plastic wrap. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. And gets this really silly answer and it's just lids. You buy <laughs> your to have good lids and everything fits nice and you're pretty good there. But the main thing I tell them I'll do is if you don't have a composting program, start a composting program at your restaurant. It's not that expensive. If you live in a city that already has it, I'm pretty sure New York just announced they're doing their composting program. But compost, I mean, there's so much food waste out there, right? And we all know we can say we're a zero waste restaurant, but things still just aren't edible or they go bad or there's too much trim of something for your demand. It needs to go somewhere and a landfill is the last place you want to send it. So a composting program is like step one, I think, for anybody in the restaurant industry. What are some mistakes to avoid as it relates to sustainability? The things that you thought were going to move the needle and then just didn't. Mm, that's a really good one. So I probably don't think about it enough. <laughs> I would say just buying organic for the sake of buying organic. You could buy organic carrots and you could get them shipped from wherever. And then that's not sustainable. That's a real easy thing to think that, oh, I'm not using this. It's going to be better for the world. But oftentimes those larger big box producers of those things Maybe an organic material, but the amount they're putting in the ground is still toxic. So <laughs> that's an easy thing where you can think organic is great, where just knowing your farmers and knowing their practices, if they're doing regenerative farming or and just like good practices is a lot better. Also, exploitation of people we could talk about that might be behind that organic farm that you don't know about. And that's not sustainable. So when we started offering retirement packages and subsidized health care to our team, we couldn't afford it, but we did it because what we found was we can't afford anything, right? A restaurant can't afford anything ever. But if you spend the money, you find the money. And so what we found was, is that in offering subsidized health care and offering retirement programs, even though that cost us money, we found the money. Somehow we made money other ways or the per customer average increase because the staff was more enthused or the, they were reducing our expenses because they were less likely to be careless with overtime. There were all of these different ways that we saw that it all kind of leveled itself out. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, 100%. I agree with that all the way. Yeah, the carelessness thing. I mean, there's a lot more pride in what you're doing every day and you don't have as much breakage when someone's maybe moving plates or glassware and that we know that stuff adds up, right? It's also just very interesting that we kind of work in like a low overhead model. We try to eliminate a lot of things that require more staff than necessary. And it's this weird, I guess, hybrid of that family mentality and this is a team and we're trying to build it because our cooks, we want them to be a part of service as well. And they're running food and they're engaging with guests and taking that time. And that requires everybody then to be a part of our service charge, which we do. And then that actually increases their wage, their hourly wage for everybody in the restaurant. I think that's a way we do it. Even though it's automatically into the meal, it's just still a percentage. And it becomes a lot better of a culture too, because if you're working harder, you're getting paid more money if we do more covers. The classic thing with a cook is you do a 200 cover night, get your butt kicked, you walk out, you still made your $100 shift pay, and the server walked out with $400. I mean, it's, it doesn't yeah, help. Yeah. 
but also the same effect when it comes to polishing time in between our ship, like our first seating and our second seating, cooks will be polishing silverware and glassware. It just becomes this one job instead of many jobs, right? And everyone takes a turn at doing everything, myself included. So I think that helps too. Like we don't have a set polisher and things like that. We've kind of lessened how many positions we need in the restaurant because we're able to navigate doing those things. So I want to talk about sustainability through the lens of you and your life, because many times, and I found myself in this place as well, the restaurant was functioning in a sustainable way. The staff, we were operating in a way that honored our commitments to sustainability in terms of labor, but the pace of my life wasn't sustainable. So how do you build sustainability into your own life as a chef, as an entrepreneur, as a parent? Yeah, I will say it's been a little harder since some recent accolades. It's been a little more of a push, but it just knowing where you need to take that time and being aware of it. It's important for me to get up and be able to exercise in the morning. I feel like if I don't do that, then I'm just going to kind of regret it and it's not going to keep me in a healthy place too. So, I mean, that's a really important part of it. And also just not feeling guilt about not being there because if I can take care of myself first, then the team's going to be better because if I'm tired and worn out and cranky, that's not good for anybody, right? So try to set up a real honest schedule where, okay, well, at eight o'clock, I'm going home because I'm going to go read stories to my kids for that's what I do. And turning things off. My work email is only on my laptop. I don't put it on my phone or anything because it's real easy to flick that on and just get caught up in that in the morning or if I'm out doing something with my family. If it's that urgent, you're going to call me, right? And I think we've gotten in this mindset where everything's so important. But in the reality, if you put ego out of it, it's no one really, it's not that bad. So doing that, I think is really, really important. Not working on your days off, just turn it off is really important. It's hard to, when you're thinking about running a business and all the little things that get wrong and you can get excited and inspired still in that time off. And I think that's important, but I feel like you get more inspired when you are completely unplugged from the restaurant. That's huge. And the old me probably would have been like, oh, my kids can play in the restaurant while I'm working, but that's just putting a bandaid on things where now it's like, if I'm going to your softball game in the morning and we're going to hang out, we're going to get lunch and then I'm going to go into work. And I'm not just the owner doing that. I want my team, if they have important things they need to do in their lives, to be able to do that too. I'm going to work around the schedule because things come and flow. And I think that's how you keep it sustainable. It wasn't easy to get where I am now, especially opening a restaurant, coming out of the rough of the pandemic and dealing with that where you just feel like you need to do it. But I think that also gave me a moment to say, what is really important to me, right? And it's funny when I wasn't worried and didn't really care about being on this list or that list and just focus on sustainability and focus on my own mental health and physical health is when all those things kind of came together. I think that's an important lesson there that if you step away, you can create this room for healing and growth. Well, and let's talk about that. So for those that don't know, Rob was awarded the Best Chef on the Planet Award by the James Beard Foundation. I'm sure that whether it was on your bucket list or not, I'm sure it was this amazing moment. But I'm sure that very few people that we come into contact with are present focused, right? Oh my God, this is so amazing. Congratulations. I'm sure the question you get more often than not is, what's next? What are you going to do? 
and there's this pressure associated with performing, right? How are you going to grow the restaurant? What's next? Are you going to open 20 of them? What's the next thing going to look like? Maybe you should bring it to New York. Are you going to do a fast, casual version of this restaurant? What's next? How do you deal with that pressure? Because that's certainly external pressure. I'm sure some of it bleeds internally, but how do you handle it? And when you look at the awards and accolades you've gotten, how have they influenced you? Yeah, it's definitely been a really interesting time. I think I was fortunate to, we took on a publicist right before that happened, like a week before the James Beards. And she's been amazing at organizing things and filtering through what's actually should be in your ear and whatnot. But I realized we just got this recognition for our work with sustainability. And I think the most sustainable thing would have been to just keep focused on that restaurant and make sure that we keep building it to be strong. So then we can go do these things. I know they strike while it's hot, but for us, we felt that would be the most unsustainable thing to do was to just start taking all these offers and start talking to folks. So kind of just saying like, I'm not going to do that. It's either like hell yeah or no. And there's some things that have come up that were great. I mean, we were going to open this oyster garage. There was like this oyster bar next to the restaurant. We opened that. And that was this idea we had before the restaurant had taken off and become as successful it has. And we still opened it as that original conception. And we realized that that wasn't the right thing. It was a distraction from everything we wanted. So we closed that and we were turning into a private dining room where we can keep doing the food and eat those we want with the same intent, with the same team and create more money and maximize the space we have rather than trying to build another restaurant with another team and trying to navigate that. Why don't we just take what we have and extract as much as we can out of it in a sustainable. We're not like, hey guys, guess what? We're doing four turns now. We're working with two in the morning. It's like, no, we can sit eight to 10 guests in here and do private dinners, right? <laughs> Did I say four turns? I meant five. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're cleaned up. We just sat a six stop. <laughs> Turn the oven back off. We're going to be here a while. <laughs> exactly. The restaurant industry is filled with all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Forget the rules. There's ways of doing things because that's the way they've been done. And there's a way to question those things. And I think that's one way we've approached the restaurant and just think of things differently, turn things upside down, kind of have a child's eyes with things in the restaurant. And when we talk about sustainable things, like we have drinking water left over at the end of the night, we just normally just pour that down the drain, right? Or burn the ice out in the wells. But we have a lot of plants in the restaurant. Let's water them. Oh, we could boil this water and clean the floors with it. We have to start looking at other ways to do things and how we treat people, I think is huge. It's just, I don't know, be a good human being, I think is like these rules are kind of bad in the long run. Put more vegetables on your menu would be really great. I'm not advocating for everyone to go vegan or vegetarian. Just they're so exciting and there's so much you can do with it. I think that's really great. And where you think you're saving money and being cheap is probably not in the long run. Really look at those numbers. I think people buy such poorly made things. And sometimes you're in a situation where that's the only thing you can do. But really look at the investment on things because in the long run, it'll pay off. Our industry suffers from razor thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. 
For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager in Yelp ads? They experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Chef Rob Ruba. For more information on the chef and his restaurant, visit OysterOysterDC.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.